This is the spot, my sons. Shalom, my friend. I, I don't know that word. It's something my family says. It's a greeting of peace. You won't find much of that here, I'm afraid. I'm Jacob. I'm Yassib. Yassib, I would offer you something to drink, but as you can see, we have just begun work on our well. You bought this land from the sons of Himo. For only 100 kesida, can you believe it? <laughs> I believe it every time the princes of this land cheat another foreigner. You will cost the day you pay that 100 kesita. And what do you think would have been a fair price? Zero kesita, zero goats, zero... I have 12 sons to work the land, and once we strike water... You will never strike water. Yes, the recent rain makes the land look lush, but the underground river runs around the mountain, not up it. Our god takes care of us. This is Canaan. The gods are not nice here. <laughs> We won't be here that long. We are sojourners. Ah, and what are you looking for? A land our God promised my grandfather, Abraham. Your grandfather? You ever notice how the gods are always promising us things, but we never really see them happen? Sometimes it takes generations. Ah, <laughs> suit yourself. So what is this uh, god of yours called, anyway? El Shaddai. I've never heard of him. Not many people have, but I think someday they will. You have no home? Where's your temple for this god? He has no temple. So where do you worship him? We build altars wherever we go. And you do not carry him with you? No. There are no carved idols of him. So he's invisible? Yes. Well, usually. There was one time he broke my hip. <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> I've heard enough. Of all the gods you could possibly choose from, you pick an invisible god whose promises take generations to come true, who, who makes you sojourn in strange places, and he broke your hip. That is a strange choice. <laughs> oh, immigrants. We didn't choose him. Father! Us. If you're taking notes today, I want you to write this down. Number one, you are chosen. You, you, like, okay, so for the person that thinks, not nah, me, no, 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 you specifically, especially you. For the one that just had a, a temptational thought in their mind that thought maybe I was talking to somebody else. I think the Holy Spirit just said to me to remind you specifically, the one in the room that doesn't think that I'm talking to them, you. Look at your neighbor and say, you. All right, now look at the neighbor you didn't choose and tell them, even you. Come on, son. That's funny. All right, you, you are chosen. John chapter 15, John chapter 15, verse 16. Jesus speaking to the disciples he says this, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. You don't just bear it, you abide in it, okay? 
Then he says, so whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. All right, for all the Bible types in the room, I'm, I'm, I'm about to bless you. There are three extreme, in my ideas, extreme interpretations and actually biblical doctrinal ideologies formed just out of portions of this one verse, three different ones. Let's go from the bottom up. <clears throat> the first one is this very last line. Well, the Bible says, whatever you ask the Father in my name, that means if your bills need to be paid, if your miracle needs to come, if your health needs to come. Okay, so I'm not against necessarily. Okay, but, but God, God is not a genie stuck in his Bible that I just rub when I need something. Come on, that's not who he is. And you don't give to get. You get because he gave. Come on, somebody. You don't give to get. You give because he gave. You serve because he gave. You pray because he gave. You believe because he gave. You do whatever it is that God lays on your heart to do because the work has already been done. There's nothing else to do. So you can give $1,000 if that's what the Holy Spirit tells you to. But don't think that you buy your miracle because your miracle was already purchased. His name was Jesus, and he did it on the cross. It's, it's an extreme idea to get stuck here and just tell everybody, no, 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 whatever you ask. Or well, what if they're asking is evil? <laughs> what if what they're asking is not for their betterment? What if what they're asking would actually be a hindrance to what God has? He knows. This second one about halfway up appointed you so that you could go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Now, there are some who take this to an extreme, and they begin to tell people that in the moments that you're not providing fruit, that's the moment you better hope Jesus doesn't come back. You know, have you, have you ever heard the phrase, that what you want to be doing when Jesus comes back? Now, I saw it on a movie, but I also had a grandmother that used to say it. <laughs> that what you want to be doing when Jesus comes back? And this ideology would teach you to try to serve God in fear, as if he's just waiting like Zeus with a lightning bolt, wishing you would mess up, okay? God's not an angry boss ready to fire somebody. It's not who he is. But if you believe in an extreme and you pull this scripture out of the context in which it was written, then you can proof text just a part of this passage and make it prove a point that you want to prove that he didn't mean. Now, I can't say that again, so I hope you got it. <laughs> All right, very top, and this is the one we're going to dig into a little bit. The Bible says, Jesus told his disciples, you did not choose me. I chose you. I chose you. Now, some doctrines, some ideologies take this and go, you don't choose him. You have no choice. God is only and supremely and ultimately sovereign, and you don't have a, you, you don't have a choice in the matter. Okay, that would be to take this one phrase, hone in on this, and ignore the rest of Scripture. To say that God only predestinated. Now, I do believe in predestination. I just also believe that my predestination is dependent upon my pursuit of his presence. And those things go hand in hand when we look from Genesis to the, from the beginning all the way to the end. And everything in between. See, for those of you who study scripture, 
And for those of you who don't, we're supposed to, okay? So, so just, I'm going to give you a little bit of extra reading. Everybody loves extra reading. Praise God for extra reading, okay? You're going to go home today and read your Bible on your own, not just what I read to you on the screen, but you can go look, hey, verse, chapter, chapter 13, 14, and 15, okay? And then if you want to, um, even into 16, this is a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. This conversation is it actually begins when Jesus begins to tell them who's going to betray him, okay? In fact, he says, everybody in the room, the one who dips his bread in the cup with me and takes it, this is my betrayer. I mean, it's really hard to miss the interpretation of this passage. And then Judas takes his bread, dips it in the cup, and the Bible says, at that moment, the devil entered him. And, and the Calvinists are those who believe in this reformed theology, which I am adamantly against because I believe it breeds arrogance. And I also believe it paints a really bad picture of the Father's heart. And I'll show you why in just a minute. Um, the Calvinists would say, see, the devil entered him right there. And Jesus knew. Jesus told him. He just told him what not to do. And he did it anyways. Let's back up a little further. Judas was like the treasurer of the disciples. If you read through scripture, it was Judas who was in charge of the money box. In other words, like he saw what went in, what went out, who paid who, when, and how it was paid. Jesus put him over the one thing he knew he would succumb to if he didn't learn the discipline of surrender. And although he saw all the resource, I mean, guys, thousands upon thousands of people leaving offerings, giving Jesus thanks and praise and gifts. I mean, he had a fruitful ministry, okay? And then he ran them all off. We'll get to that in the next series. <laughs> Judas saw all of this, and yet he sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Because he was predestined to go to hell from the very beginning? That's tough. Especially when you see how many opportunities God gave him to make the right... How many opportunities does God have to give you to make the right choice? I'm telling you, you are chosen. You can't believe one text from one place and not believe the rest of the text in all the other places. For instance, it is the will of God... That none should perish, but that all would come to repentance. So I believe, listen, we are chosen. I, I laugh when I was, I didn't think of this until this service. I was watching that passage where the man was having a conversation with Jacob, a little bit of an extra biblical idea, but, but very much probable because of the land that he was in and the land of Canaan and, and how it didn't, it wasn't really very fruitful and there wasn't a whole lot that had happened and yet God had made a promise that was tied to that land. And I thought, I thought, like, Eunice was our Canaan. <laughs> like, do you know how many people had that conversation? Y'all are going, what? Y'all are going to what, where? <laughs> are you sure? No. <laughs> but look what God did. No, 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 look what God did. See, he doesn't need, he doesn't need a land, okay? He just needs a person. And I'm not more chosen than you are. 
wherever he put you. I want you to notice that the land wasn't blessed until the man of God went to the land. The land wasn't blessed until the woman of God went to the land. The office isn't blessed until the man or the woman of God walk into the office. The house isn't blessed until the man or woman of God walk into the house. The marriage isn't blessed until the man or the woman. You put whatever you want to put in it, but the blessing follows you. You don't follow the blessing as long as you're in him. Because just a few passages later, in John 14, then the beginning of John 15... We see the context of this conversation. Now Judas is no longer in the room. And the Reformed theology or the predestination types, they would like to say, well, see, that was only for the disciples, what I just read. Jesus said, I, I chose you and I appointed you. Hold on, listen to me, hear me. I, I've been wrong before. If I thought I was, I wouldn't say it. It's rare. I mean, it happens. Just, it's hard for me to admit it, okay? <laughs> If Jesus was only talking to the disciples in that part of the text, then why was he talking to everybody in the first part of the text? Because in the first part of the text, he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. And we preach that passage to everybody. And then all of a sudden, we get down to verse, 20, or verse 16 and we go, oh, no, 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 that was only for the apostles. No, no, you've got to look at the context of the conversation in order to truly understand what it is saying. Let me help you study scripture. You ready? Never read into scripture what you want it to say. Always seek to read out of scripture what the scripture is trying to say. Consider who's saying it, who they're saying it to. So I believe we are chosen, but here's what I also believe. We must choose to be chosen. We must... We must pursue his presence in order to walk in his predestination. That's Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. Let me show you what it would be like. Very visual example of what it would be like to believe in a God who predestines some to go to hell so that he can save others or use them as an example to send others to heaven. This is what it would be like. <laughs> them some pretty babies. Yeah, I am pretty and I'm married pretty. Pretty just happens. I'm just saying. It just... People scoff at me when I say that. Mainly my sister. Normally my sister's like, <laughs> she knows I'm pretty too. That's why she marries somebody who looks like me, just a little shorter. <laughs> All right, so these are, these are my children, in case you didn't know. Then just pull random pictures of pretty people. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, this is Emery Grace, also known as Little Megan. Um, mischievous and beautiful uh, with Megan's hair only. That's about it. Outside of that, he's me. And then finally, finally, this like conglomerate of genetics from all over the place that we don't really recognize very often, but we know that she's ours. Adeline, our oldest A-type, perfectly orderly person who finishes school three and a half weeks early while the rest of her siblings keep going. Okay, so <laughs> she's good for us. We're good for her. It's a great relationship. The idea, the idea of Reformed theology says this, I sacrifice him so that she can be saved. The idea of Reformed theology is, I had three children so that I could use one or two of them to live in eternal separation in a place called hell so that I can have the one that could live with me in eternity, not in a place called heaven, but a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, 
I'm sorry if you believe that way, but that's not my God. That's not my father. He chose me. Just like I, I've chosen them. The, I asked Emery Grace last night, I love you. She said, I love you too. I said, why do you love me? I said, why do I love you? And she said, because I'm your daughter. See, she understands that my concern and my pleasure for her is not based on her performance for me, but on who she is to me. But she has to choose. Listen to me. No matter how much I love them, no matter how much I pray for them and anoint them and or whip the heaven into them. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> hey, I'm, I listen. Spare the rod. He who spares the rod hates his child. That scripture is still applicable today. Now, it doesn't mean that you wind up, make sure they feel it. No, that's not. That's called beating. You can go to jail. Okay, don't do that. Especially in Walmart, okay? If you're going to scream at your kids and shake them, wait till you get back in the car, okay? Roll the windows up, okay? Drive into an empty spot in the parking lot. Quit showing everybody how crazy you are. Anyway, so I have, I have all three. And the Bible does say it would be better for them to be lamed or maimed than to enter into hellfire whole. They have to choose my heavenly father. No, how, no matter how much I train, no matter how much I equip, no matter how much I pray, it's still their choice. And if somebody believes that God created one of them to send them to hell so that he could have the other two, I'm sorry, that's just not the God of the Bible. We must choose to be chosen. The choice is ours. That's the beauty of this relationship. Number two, we must commit. We must commit. I thought I picked with him, so I'll praise him a little bit. I thought Pastor Weston did a great job honoring our seniors and our graduates. And by the way, not just our high school graduates, but, but college graduates, graduate school graduates, because everybody knows that's harder than all the other two. And then, uh, and then finally, if somebody in our church received a PhD, please let us know. Like, I want to celebrate you and send you a present, okay? Um, those are... Those are incredible accomplishments and and I wanted I wanted to just reiterate from last week what kind of life advice could I give to a 15 to 25 year old but then I thought the 25 to 35 year olds they're just barely figuring this thing out the 35 to 45 year olds they they may begin to walk in their kazon but at this point they're wondering man am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing and then the 45 to 55 year olds are looking back and going man should I have prepared or done something else do I have enough time to make this happen and then the 55 and olders are going man have I done what I was supposed to do and what else do I have left to do so this message is really for everybody i believe if you still have a heartbeat and breath in your lungs you have to commit in order to answer the call. You are chosen. And my calling is no greater than yours just because it's different from yours. Everybody's designation, the details are different, but you're still destined for something. And that something is significant. Whether you go to the other end of the earth as a missionary, whether you take a job as a full-time vocational pastor, quit your job to come work at Eunice Christian Academy, or you're still on the campus and or in the workplace as an attorney, a lawyer, or you're driving the trash truck and cleaning up our mess after the rest of us. Your calling is important. It's eternal. But we must commit. This Memorial Day weekend, man, what a perfect opportunity to talk about commitment. 
people who would go and give up their lives as they know it so that other people could receive life and, and walk in freedom and not take it for granted. The men and women of every branch of the military and our first responders and those who leave their homes every day and their spouses, their friends, and their family wonder if they will return home the next day. That's commitment. Commitment is the rudder that steers a chosen life. You may want to write that down. Commitment is the rudder that steers the chosen life. It is the sail that receives the wind of the Spirit that blows them as He wills. It is the axle of the vehicle that determines the destination of the predestination. Commitment is, is what is required in order for anything of significance to begin. Commitment is what is required in order to keep going when it becomes difficult. Commitment is what is required in any major purchase or, or major decision. Commitment is not the first step. It's every step after the first step. It, it requires commitment to be and remain married in a culture that defames it. It, it, it requires commitment to to go to school, finish school, to find a job and not expect it to just be put in your lap. It requires commitment once you find that job to stay in that job. It requires commitment to be part of a family. Anybody can walk away, but when you walk in, can you stay? A significant purchase requires commitment. A car payment, a house note, Jesus, requires commitment. Paying things on time, no growth, hear me, no growth, no development can happen without commitment. No personal development. You will never learn more about God's word unless you commit to his word. You will never learn more about whatever your occupation may be unless you commit to learn. And it amazes me how many people will go to school for how long and how much energy and effort they will commit to their occupation so they can make money like Judas. And yet they don't take that same amount of commitment and, 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 and apply it to their spiritual walk. They just expect God to do it all for them. They work so hard in so many other areas. And then all of a sudden, when it comes to their spiritual development or their leadership development, they just expect to be entitled like the culture that they can't stand. It takes commitment to improve your physical health. Well, my bad. I just got in something. It takes commitment to burn fat and build muscle. It takes commitment to eat properly and exercise properly so that you add years to the temple of the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. It takes commitment to develop spiritually. Anything good and of value requires commitment. Commitment is what separates dreamers from doers. Commitment is what causes somebody to go from vision to accomplishment. Commitment is a unique blend of passion and consistency, focus and determination. Listen, this is more than self-help. This is spiritual. Commitment will cause you, hear me, commitment will cause you to do things that you didn't want to do so that you accomplish objectives that are greater than you. 
Let me say it again. Commitment will cause you to do things you did not want to do for people you didn't want to do them for. <laughs> to accomplish objectives that outlive you, that outlast you, that are greater than you. Commitment, uh, it can be seen this way. Pastor Weston asked me to preach for him last Wednesday night, and uh, we were talking about some of this, and I really wanted to encourage the students. We didn't want to just honor them on one Sunday. We wanted to continue to inspire them, and, and I was listening to this message, and I, and I had this idea, and, and, I, and I, I wrote a bunch of words on a bat, like this is what the culture says about you. The culture says you should be bitter and offended and, and unforgiving, and, and the culture says that, that you should be sad when you don't get your way, and the culture says you should be depressed and discouraged, and, and the culture said if somebody hurts you, you should hurt yourself and and this is just the way of the world and I had all these things written on a bat pride and arrogance and addiction and bondage and and I was going to break the bat problem y'all don't even know the story yet <laughs> I meant to grab that stinking bat it's in there I'm telling you suckers bowed I was boom every vein in my little skinny body was popping out every neck vein and arm vein and I was on that bat and it was doing like this and I've broken bats before like some of them on purpose and so um I was and it was bending but it wouldn't break and so I finally I took that bat and I threw it over there up against the wall and I had another bat it was the last bat. It has pine tar on it. It was so pretty. It had pine tar on it. The top was hard. And some of our baseball players know what I'm talking about. I had hardened that ash in. It was compressed. And, and it would, had a tapered handle. It was I-13. Y'all don't even know what I'm talking about now. But it was a beautiful bat. It was the last bat that I had to show that I used to be cool. And, and I had it sitting up here. And I was like, sometimes you can't break the things that you want to break. But God will give you another way. And, the, and all the students, you can even watch it online. I was like, the, all the students go, no. Because I just told them how cool that bat was to me. And I took that bat, pow, and I snapped. And they all go, oh. And then I made it spiritual. You know, and I was like, because you think that bat means more to me than your soul means to me? I brought that bat in here tonight to tell somebody. And they started, they started laughing. And then I left here. I was excited when it happened, but then I left here really sad. I was like, I broke my bat, man. I went home. Megan's like, I can't believe you did that. I was like, I know. I don't have another one. That was it. Why'd I break the bat? Because I was committed. <laughs> I was committed. Pastor West is like, I'm so glad you had another bat. Or we'd still be here waiting on you to break that first one. I was committed. I was committed. The Bible said, I see, I believe that, that commitment is attractive. And I believe that commitment is inspirational. I'd have broke 17 more if I had them just to see one more student get saved. And I reminded myself of that all night as I was sad over my bat. I was like, no, 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 Jesus, somebody got saved tonight. Somebody going to remember me snapping my last bat. <laughs> But the Bible says that commitment attracts God's attention. Amen. Psalm chapter 37. Is that right? Oh, look at me. Verse 5. In the New Living Translation, the Bible says, commit everything you do to the Lord. Hey, by the way, hear me. Listen, warning. If you can't commit it to the Lord, then you don't need to be doing it. If you can't commit it to the Lord, then you need to stop going there. Stop watching that. If you can't commit it to the Lord, then you need to crucify it in the Lord. Walk away. 
But if you can, then commit it to God. Stop just going about your day. Commit everything, everything you do, parenting, job, occupation, friendships, family. Come on, having a parent, being a child. Commit everything you do to the Lord and then trust him. Why? Because when you quit, it shows you don't trust him. And then the Bible says, and he will help you. It doesn't say you're not going to go through anything difficult. It's not gonna, it doesn't say there's not going to be some tough times. The Bible says clearly in several places that when you go through the tough times, he will help you. He will be with you. Hey, you're going to go through the tough times anyway. You may as well go through it with him. It's way better to go through it with him than against him. Come on, somebody. Commit everything you do. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 3. I'm reading this one from the English Standard Version. It says, commit your work to the Lord. And a lot of versions say, and all your plans will succeed. But that makes it selfish. It's just an English translation. This is a way better word. Because God never tells us to do anything so that we can gain selfishly. Hear me, it's important. He tells us to do things so that we can gain eternally in and outside of ourselves. So when he says, commit your work to the Lord, all your plans will be, this a way better interpretation of this word, established. You know what he's saying? He said, I'm going to add eternity to your temporary. Your best works are like filthy rags, but when I add grace, your works make an eternal impact. I use what you didn't think you could do to do things that only I can do when you commit. Commitment is the key that unlocks your potential. Here's a simple question. How can I measure my commitment? Do I give as well as I get? Do I give as well as I get? Make some people snicker. You ready? You can ask it this way. Am I a leader or a leech? <laughs> That's gross, but it's a good way to think about it spiritually. So here's what I'm asking. A leader, a leader, you ready? A leader will receive and reciprocate life. That's what a leader does. Receives life from the church, reciprocates life as the church. Receives life from a friendship, reciprocates life as a friend. Receives life as a child, come on, reciprocates life as an example. A leader will receive and reciprocate life. A leech, suck the life out of you. Do your children want to be around you because you're a leader? Or do they not want to be around you because you're a leech? Do your friends want to be around you because you're a leader? Or do they not want to be around you because you're a leech? Does your church look forward to you signing up because you're a leader? Or do we pray and ask God to use you despite the fact? <laughs> we as a church, not like me personally, I'm talking about everybody. It's a conglomerate conviction that we carry. Am I a leader or a leech? Am, am I a giver or a taker? Look, let's make it simple. Do you stay longer than you're asked to? Do you work harder then someone makes you. Do you borrow things and bring them back better than you borrowed them? Do you leave people better than you found them? Do you invest 
more than you withdraw do you continue to push when you wanted to put it down? When it gets tough, do you talk or do you show up with tenacity that is needed to accomplish and finish as an example? Do I give just barely what I'm asked or do I truly believe in extravagant generosity because I serve an extravagant savior? Commitment. I believe this. If you're not good at this, then lean in right here. You ready? I believe that your could be is locked up in your commitment. It's more than self-help. It's spiritual. Number three, we must live with conviction. Watch this final scene that we're going to show in this series of The Chosen, and I'll come wrap this message up. Shalom. Me? Yes. Shalom. I have a question for you. For me. I don't have many answers, but I'm listening. Do you want to be healed? having a really bad day. You've been having a bad day for a long time. I'm asking about you. <laughs> I've tried. For a long time, I know. And you don't want false hope again, I understand. But this pool... Nothing for you. It means nothing. And you know it. But you're still here. Why? I don't know. You don't need this pool. Ha, ha, ha.
free to walk, like he said. Don't forget your bed. Why does this matter? Because you're not coming back here. That life is over. Everything changes now. Great. <laughs> Thank you for letting me see that. Thank you for being with me. Well, the Pharisees were pretty upset. That was almost as much fun to watch as the miracle. This week should be fun, huh? I do have a question, Rabbi. Yes, Matthew? Sometimes you gotta stir up the water. commitment we need to have a die-hard conviction to that which we are called we don't serve a savior that just committed to a cause come on we serve a savior who was convicted for a cause what was the cause you me the calling that he had, my predestined purpose upon my life. But in order to receive the chosen life that he has for me, I have to commit to it and then I have to live with conviction. Sometimes you just got to stir up the waters. Come on, everybody knows if you don't stir up the gumbo, it just burns. It's no good. You can't just let that thing sit. You got to stir it up. I'm talking to somebody today. You need to quit sitting on something that you're hoping to happen and stir something up. I love one of our in-house prophets asked me before service, are you talking about John 14 today? And I said, I'm speaking to the context of it. She said, well, what about commitment? And I was like, did you listen to the message? No. I just know that in John 14, around verse 27, the Bible says, peace, Jesus is saying to the disciples, peace, I bring to you, I give it to you. It's already given. You don't have to give anything to get it. You just have to receive it. Peace, I give to you. And then he says this, let not your hearts be troubled. One version says, let not your heart commit to the trouble. So I looked up the word during prayer. And that word actually means, this is so cool. You gotta, guys, first service didn't get this. That word actually means to be stirred up. That's the original Greek word for trouble. Let not your heart be stirred up by the things of the world. Come on, because you need to let it be stirred out by the peace of the kingdom. And when you're stirred up by the peace of the kingdom, you're not stirred up by the problems of the culture. Woo, I got to write that down for next service. But you got to live with conviction. 
beyond your life, young person, beyond your life, senior saint. You're still here. You still have a purpose. God still has a plan. And commitment is powerful. But listen to me. Conviction is spiritual. Conviction is where we move from the surface into the sacred. It's the things that we're willing to be excluded over. It's the things that we're willing to lose our occupation, our ability to provide. Because I would rather offend the person that thinks they are providing for me than the actual provider himself. It is the area of your life where you would rather be convicted to pursue purity than succumb to the temptation of momentary pleasure, especially when nobody else is around. It is the area of your life where you choose unity over offense, no matter how stupid this culture becomes about it. Whatever end of the spectrum you're on, we will fight for the spirit of unity, not just this idea of unity, but we as God's people will truly be one in Christ. It's a conviction. It's a hill I'm willing to die on. It's a place you're willing on this Memorial Day to lay your life down on behalf of somebody else, not getting anything in return. It's the area where you are so convicted by generosity that any area of greed is crucified in Jesus' name. You are so convicted by humility that any area of pride, even when you're at your worst moment, on your worst day, God can still ask you anything. Doesn't this seem like it's, when he shows up and asks for something? When you literally already know you have nothing left to give and God comes and says, hey, uh, hey, I was wondering if you would, uh, like, do you not see what is going on? It's the area of your life that you're willing to lose relationship if you have to. Listen, you can't do that with everything because if you do it with everything, you don't really do it for anything. It's important. It's righteousness and holiness. Listen to me, young people. It's righteousness and holiness in a secular university. It's righteousness and holiness in philosophy 101. When they're trying to indoctrinate you out of your doctrine. It's righteousness and holy adult, senior adult, when another church is trying to recruit you over to make you feel better about the things that you're stuck in. It's righteousness and holiness that will cause you to love and approve doctrine over anything else, even your own desires. It's righteousness and holiness in the face of Pledge Week. It's righteousness and holiness in the face of popularity. It's righteousness and holiness in the face of promotion. It's righteousness and holiness at persecution's worst. Conviction. If I want to be known for something, I want to be known for this. That is conviction. Because I don't want to look back at my life and wonder what if. What if I would have been a little more committed? What if I would have been a little more convicted? I prayed in this sanctuary one day, God, let the consequence of the wrong decision, let the conviction of the wrong decision be even greater than the consequence. That's wisdom, by the way. The right decision on the front end, instead of looking back and wishing you would have made the correct decision the first time. Galatians 6, 9, New Living Translation says this, so let's not get tired of doing what is good. 
You can't. You can't get tired of doing what is good. In a culture of convenience and entitlement, you cannot get tired of doing what is good. When all of your friends are watching whatever they want to, when the people that you know and love are doing whatever they want to, when other ideologies are saying whatever they want to, you have to live with conviction and not grow weary in well-doing. You can't grow weary when you're walking with Jesus because you're not walking in your strength. Woo, that's good preaching. You're walking in His. And you realize that the pressure is not on you to perform. The pressure is on you to pursue. And as long as you pursue, then He will produce conviction. At just the right time, the Bible says, you will reap a harvest. So quitting shows that we weren't really committed and we're not really convicted, but not growing weary and believing and trusting God in the most tempting moments, trusting God in the toughest moments you will reap a harvest if. Now I found it so interesting that our prayer pastor, Blaine Francois, came up this morning at eight o'clock not having heard my message yet. And he said this from this platform. He said, you only lose if you quit. You only lose, he said, if you give up. What a divine echo. I don't know who you are or what you're thinking about quitting, but the Holy Spirit is here today and he's saying, don't get tired of doing what is right. For in due time, you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. Don't give up, give in. Close with this story, a man named William Borden, he's actually not even a man, he was, he was a young man, just, just barely aged into being able to apply what he had prepared for. His family in the early 19th century was one of the wealthiest in the nation, which would mean they were one of the wealthiest in the world. He was set to inherit his family's wealth. He graduated high school, his family sent him on a tour around the world. They sent him on a trip, like a senior trip, you know, where most people lose their soul. He gained his. He went on a senior trip around the world, see what his parents were not considering as they wanted him to be exposed to all that the world had to offer. What they weren't considering is that William Borden had given his life to Jesus under an evangelist known by the name of D.L. Moody. <laughs> Look him up. Uh, actually, you know what? D.L. Moody walked around New York City after the Chicago fire, after his church was burned down, and after he didn't share the gospel with some people or give them a chance to receive salvation. He walked around the streets of New York City. You can look this up in his auto and or bibliography. D.L. Moody walked around the streets of New York City praying, God, prepare me and baptize me. 
Prepare me and baptize me. Prepare me and baptize me. And it said, according to his story, that he was sitting in a room praying, prepare me and baptize me. And D.L. Moody saw a pillar of fire come down in the middle of that room and consume spiritually everything that he had been asking for and prepare him in a moment what took most people years. And he walked out of that room and began a ministry that is still setting the world on fire today because you can't grow weary when you're walking with Jesus. All right, that was not even part of that. This is William Borden. William Borden gave his life to this ministry. And he went on this trip and he wrote home and he said, I'm called. He understood he was chosen, but now he saw that he was called. And he confessed the calling to his family. And his family ostracized him. They persecuted him. His mother and father wrote him out of his inheritance. He said, I want to go and minister to the Muslims in China. And they wrote him out of his will. He still went to Yale University, small college up north. It's no big deal. Ended up with a graduate degree because the Bible does say that we should study and show ourselves approved. Ended up with a graduate degree from Princeton Theological Seminary. So he was well-educated. And then he decided to make good on his confession. And he was going to China to minister to the Muslims, but he stopped in Egypt because he wanted to learn the language. And while he was in Egypt learning the language of the Muslims that he wanted to go minister to, after he had given up his family's inheritance, one of the wealthiest in the world at that time, he contracted spinal meningitis. That is not good. I had meningitis when I was five years old. I had a needle like that go into my back. I was five and I still remember that thing. My daddy had to hold me down because <laughs> I was manifesting. <laughs> you know, it's... Now, I didn't have the most deadly version between viral and bacterial. And uh, in fact, somebody in the same ward of the hospital that week ended up passing away and I was healed. Um, William Borden was not as fortunate. He died in Egypt. What a horrible story. <laughs> Gave up his inheritance to go into foreign missions, never even made it to the field and died. Now a worldly person would look at that and go, it doesn't make any sense. But a kingdom person would look at that and go, what's God up to? What's God doing? An American newspaper heard about his story and they published it in an article. Across this nation, millions of people began to read the story of William Borden. In that story, it is said that in the margin of his Bible, he had written the words, no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. You're going to need this in this generation. Listen, you're not going to be able to casually blend into culture any longer and call yourself a Christian. Do you hear me? Now, I'm a pastor by trade, but right now I'm, op I'm operating in the prophetic. Hear me. I'm not, a, I'm not a prophet. I'm operating in the prophetic. I'm really just operating in the obvious. It is about to become more difficult than it has ever been to be a Christian in the United States of America. You are not going to be able to casually blend into culture and call yourself a Christian. You're going to have to commit to be chosen. And you're going to have to live with conviction. Or you will stand before God and give an account for why we did not. No reserves. No retreats. No regrets. In his Bible, it is apparently dated 
after these specific circumstances of when he wrote each one of these. He wrote after he confessed his conviction to be called to foreign missions and gave up his inheritance and and faced the ostracism of his family. He wrote in his Bible, no reserves. A few years later, his his father had promised him, okay, so son, no matter what, you will always have a position in this company. You will always have a position. If you decide to, to... to put this foolishness down and and, and not chase this, if this just becomes a phase that I think it is, you'll always have a position. But when he chose to make good on his confession, his father says, you will never have a position. This is it, this is your last. He laid down an ultimatum to try to make him choose the way that he wanted him to choose. And William Borden wrote in his Bible, no retreats. He's in Egypt attempting to learn the language of the people that he wanted to go minister to. He contracts spinal meningitis on his deathbed. He opened up his Bible and he wrote, no regrets. How could you live with such conviction? The same way our men and women of first responding and armed forces gave up their lives so that we could walk out of this into this community and confess Jesus as Lord freely in this nation for just a little bit longer. How could you do that? This became the mantra of tens of thousands of young people all across America responding to the call of foreign missions on their lives. They read William Borden's story, how he never made it, and they made it in multitudes on his behalf. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. Yeah, I'm chosen, but I have to choose. I must commit and I must live with conviction. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, I pray that you would show the chosen. God, show those in this room who are choosing right now and they're confident of who they are in you. God, show us what area we can add more commitment to that you've called us in. The area that maybe we're just have one foot in instead of diving fully. Lord, show us where we can add more conviction to our daily decisions, not just our Sunday attitude. God, show us where we can live as an example that other people need to see in a generation that needs to be shown what it looks like. God, more than what we say, may the world not be more convincing convincing than the church. May the world not be more convincing than the word of God that the church lives out on a daily basis. Call us, raise us up for such a time as this. Lord, I pray right now for anybody in the room who's not confident of who they are in you. They look at their lives and it doesn't represent somebody that's following Jesus. They've fallen short. If they had to stand before you today, they'd be terrified. God, I thank you that right now you can make that right in one confession, in one prayer. If that's you and you're in the room or you're watching online, I wanna invite you to open your hands in a posture of surrender. If you have any area of your life that you know you need to surrender to the Lord, then just jump in right here and let God do what only God can do and let the Holy Spirit have that area. 
But if you need to confess Jesus as Lord for the first time or the first time in a long time right now, we're going to invite you to pray in 10 seconds. But church, I want to ask you to pray loud to partner with any person in this room or online that needs to make this confession because the power of life and death lies in what you're about to say. Would you open your hands and receive? Would you pray this prayer with me today? Jesus, forgive me where I've fallen short. I've been disobedient, half-hearted, instead of fully committed. Right now, I'm asking, You take my life and make it yours. I believe you gave your life so I could live this day for the rest that you have for me. You died on the cross. You shed your blood. You wash me. You cleanse me. You save me. You were raised from the dead so I could be born again, made new, just like you. I surrender all right now no reserves no retreats no regrets in jesus name amen come on can you give god praise today